Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you could turn with me to Mark chapter 2. You know, David brought up something interesting that we're not going to have a sermon about it, but it's certainly worth mentioning, particularly for the last 60, 70, 80, 80 years, anytime anything dramatic happens in the Middle East, particularly around Israel, the evangelical church is always wondering what our reaction ought to be. And here's our reaction. War is not good. Death is not good. Violence is not good. Conflict and turmoil between peoples is not good. That is our response. Our response is to not try to decode how the letters in Hamas or West Bank or Gaza Strip can be rearranged and fit into some passage in Revelation. Our, our thoughts ought not to, to go to that sort of thing, like this is going to be coming to our doorstep in the matter of moments. Our thoughts and prayers ought to be with the fact that conflict is bad. Conflict is one of the fruits of sin. Conflict is one of the results of the kind of enmity that exists between brotherhood of people of ethnic backgrounds. And so we certainly ought to be considering these things. We ought not bury our head in the sands, but we also not, should not get into a situation where we're running in circles and are there go, they're therefore not good for anything. So with that just mentioned, we'll actually go now in our text into Matthew chapter 2 to where these things are happening. And I think that is one of the reasons why these uh, moments and these, these news events are so poignant for Christians is because we have in the back of our minds and certainly in the forefront of our minds as we come to the Gospels and so many of the epistles and even back throughout the Old Testament that the places where these things are happening, where we see these images, we see uh, modern-day news coverage happening, and that's exactly where what we're reading about took place. So let's go to Mark chapter 2 and go to verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he stood up and followed him. Will you pray with me? Lord, we have heard this call, follow me. For those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, we did not seek you out. In fact, your word bears testimony that we did not seek you out, but we were haters of you, that we were at enmity with you that even though you have the good and perfect truth, that our lips and tongues did nothing but engage in lying. But by your great grace, in the ministry of your Spirit, the gospel of your Son, we heard the words, follow me, and we responded. Lord, we thank you for that grace, something we didn't deserve as we'll talk about here in a moment in your, from your word, that a tax collector certainly didn't deserve, but none of us deserved it. And so, Lord, with that in mind, 
We know that there are hurting people in this world. Those who are at this moment mourning the loss of loved ones and just the the pain and fear and anger that comes from warfare and conflict. And we know that on this side of the world, there's those suffering from the same emotions. Lord, we ask that you call them to follow you. Knowing that while we walk on this world, in this world, as we live our lives on this earth, that this kind of thing is to be expected because of sin, because of the fallenness of all of those who live and breathe. But we know that through discipleship, through following you, we can understand and see that you have a, a plan, that you have a providential picture, that you are weaving together a beautiful tapestry by which your people are seeing the good and by which you are glorified. Let us see that this morning in your word. Let us understand what you would have us do. It's the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, church, I want you to rewind in your minds to school assemblies. Now, for our large homeschooling population, I might have to define what that is. You had your normal school day where you were wearing real clothes, not pajamas, and you left your normal classroom and you went into the, the auditorium or into the gymnasium, and they had a speaker. And this was always initial, initially very exciting because you were now not doing class. But the trick was you were still doing class. It just wasn't in the normal place. And when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, there were some recurring themes that these, that these uh, assemblies had we learned about how the whales needed saving. I think the whales are doing okay now. I think we we succeeded. We also learned how there is a hole in the ozone. Apparently, we did well with that too because I haven't heard about it for a long time. The other thing we heard about a lot was self-esteem and how we needed it. Apparently, everyone paid far too much attention in those assemblies because everyone has a lot of self-esteem these days. We learned about daring to keep off drugs and not smoking and stopping and dropping and rolling and all of these things that have really served us well and brought us to where we are in society today. But one of the recurring themes that we heard in school assemblies was to watch out for peer pressure. Watch out for peer pressure. What is peer pressure? Peer pressure is this idea that the people around you are going to influence you. The people around you are going to impact you. It's the people around you that are going to lead you down the dangerous path or to that path of righteousness. And this is actually a very good idea. This is a very good concept. And it has a nice alliterative concept title, peer pressure, to help you remember it. It's not as good as rhyming, like stranger danger. However, it still works well. Peer pressure is something else that the church has to contend with. And it was something that we, we are going to address in our text this morning. The people who are around us are the people that we can either be influenced by to our good or our detriment, or the people that we can influence to their good or their detriment. And certainly in the context of showing and sharing the love of Christ, 
certainly in the context of being told by Jesus to follow him and then going and taking that message to others, we do want to pressure, in a sense, others as peers, showing them the goodness that comes from Christ. So once more, turn with me to, to Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 2, and look at verses 13. So remember last week, Jesus uh, healed a paralytic. And it says in verse 13 that he went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Again, his ministry is a teaching ministry. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he followed him. Follow me. And he stood up and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes, the Pharisees, saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they were saying to his disciples, He is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. This is not a good accusation. Being being told that you spend time with tax collectors and sinners was not the kind of thing that you wanted to have said about you in the first century. Why is that? Well, you've inevitably heard what tax collectors are like. Tax collectors today don't have a good reputation. It's interesting. So uh, at New England Bible Church in Andover, we're only about a mile and a half from an IRS office. Now, the IRS office does not have big, luxurious gardens and benches and welcome signs as you go to drive up to that building because everyone wants to go hang out with the IRS agents and the tax collectors. In fact, it's the very opposite. They have large fences with barbed wire and a security gate with an armed guard. And that reflects people's attitude towards IRS agents today in 2023 in the United States of America. So we understand there's a little bit of animosity in, uh, against those who take our money for one reason or another. And regardless of what you think about taxation in the 21st century and our current economic and political climate, it was not very good in the first century. And inevitably, you, you, you're familiar with the idea that the tax collectors were working for Rome, and then they got to establish the rates at which that they collected on as far as profit goes. So tax collectors were considered thieves. Tax collectors, the Jews, saw them as unclean. And in fact, in some of the extra-biblical literature, some of the writings of the rabbis and the Pharisees, they said it was permissible to lie to tax collectors, that it was an acceptable thing to do. You should never lie under any circumstance unless the tax collector came, and because they were bad, you could be bad in return. This is some very, very solid morality lessons that they were giving. But this was, this was the issue. This is the situation. This was how bad things were for them. And so we see in verse 16, the scribes, the Pharisees, saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. They were saying to his disciples, he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. This is a common refrain that we see in other gospels, and we'll see as we continue to go through the gospel of Mark. Jesus is in the business of when he engages with people, he is not only teaching. 
He doesn't stand on the street corner and yell at them. And he doesn't go and find the good people to teach. He is spending time with tax collectors and sinners, which is not only synonymous with, with those two terms, but tax collector is a certain gnarly type of sinner. And Jesus wasn't just preaching to them, as the Pharisees may have wanted them to do. Or, in fact, the Pharisees might have thought they're not worth preaching to, because why would you preach to bad people? Jesus was not only preaching to them, not only teaching them, he actually was spending time with them. Jesus calls sinners, and then Jesus spends time with sinners. Jesus calls sinners, and Jesus spends time with sinners. So Jesus calls Levi, Levi, also known as Matthew. Jesus calls him and says, follow me. Of course, we have this interesting theme throughout the course of the, the gospel of Mark, this theme of discipleship. And that looks like following Jesus. And so, literally, discipleship is following someone. There is a physical aspect of it. Jesus asks Levi to follow him so that they can sit down and eat and drink together. But certainly, it has a broader application that as you walk with Jesus, you're going to do the same kind of things that Jesus does. This is such a simple concept. We talk about our faith as a walk. And why is that? Because when you follow somebody, when you walk with someone, you inevitably do the things that you do. One of the joys of, of being in New England and having the variety of landscapes that we have is going hiking and, and spending time in the outdoors. And I've been blessed to have four boys that love being outside. And it's interesting, and, and you'll inevitably see it, as we've, I've hiked with my family and with some of your families and with other people, you have a line of children and if one kid has a walking stick, you can be sure that the next three kids behind them will also find a walking stick. If one kid has their water bottle in their hand, then the other kids have to have their water bottle in their hand. If dad has, has a camelback and is, is sucking from that little hose, if he has a hat on a certain way, if he has his sunglasses on, if he's doing something in particular, then you can be sure that all of the kids following behind are going to be doing the exact same thing. It's this inevitable thing that we pattern ourselves after the one that we're following, not just in our footsteps, but also in our actions, maybe even in our attitudes. And that is the picture of discipleship. And Jesus calls a tax collector, a person who had this pejorative, dirty word laid upon him, to be someone who follows him. And so in 16, again, we see that he was eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners, which we're seeing and we're seeing built up. And remember, we have to stay in the gospel of Mark and think about what's being taught to us and think about what's being told, that here we are at a chapter and a half into the gospel of Mark, and we're already seeing the antagonism between the Pharisees and Jesus. Last, last chapter, he was forgiving sins, and this has you know, raised their hackles. And now he's spending time with these undesirables. And how awful is that? We're already beginning to see this antagonism. He's forgiving, and now he's spending time with them. So Jesus calls sinners. Jesus spends time with sinners. But Jesus is in the business of healing sinners. And I think we can't... We, we, we can't go on, we can't make application until we nail this down and really see this. Look at verse 17. And hearing this, so Jesus hears the Pharisees talking about him, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, those who are healthy do not have need for a physician, 
but only those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are healthy do not need a physician, but only those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has a mission, and that's to heal sick people. Sick, yes, physically sick. We've seen these healed people already in, the, in this first initial chapters of the Gospel of Mark. We know that this is the kind of ministry that Christ engages in. But he is in the business of healing sin-sick people. And that's something that no matter if you can walk well, you can see every line on the, 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 the chart of the doctor's office, regardless of your physical situation, you are sin-sick, every one of us. And that's why Jesus calls a tax collector. That's why Jesus spends time with sinners. Jesus is in the business of healing sinners. Jesus is in the business of amazing renovations. There's that stretch for a while where home renovation shows were all the rage. I mean, now there's a channel where it's 24-7 of home renovation. But you you see the, the people have this penchant for flipping houses and doing it well. And what do they do? They understand that what you see at present is not the the, the limit to the potential. It's not the ceiling. With a little bit of work, with a little bit of effort, with doing some simple things that anyone with an eye for design or cleanliness or aesthetics can accomplish, you can take something that looks terrible and turn it into something that's wonderful, something that no one wants to buy and something that everyone is now bidding on. A renovation is not about taking something beautiful and making it beautifuler. It's about taking something that's in dire straits and putting it back on the right path. One of the common misconceptions, one of the the, the wrong attitudes that evangelicalism, that the American church in particular, but certainly that people can fall into, is getting into the idea that we're taking Christian-ish people and making them Christians. That we need to find good people who look like us, who act like us, who prioritize things like us, who do the kind of things that we do, that parent like we parent, that spend like we spend, that listen to the things that we listen to, that watch the kind of things that we listen to, that travel in the same circles that we do, and take them and just take them that next step and turn them into Jesus followers. We try to find people that look basically like us, and then just get them over the hump. Jesus didn't do that. I mean, he did do that. He talks to some Pharisees and say, you're not that far from the kingdom of God. So he is in that business of finding the neighbors with the perfect family life that look exactly like the kind of people that you want your kids spending time with. The only difference is that they're just kind of generally moral as opposed to Christian. Jesus sought those people out, but Jesus also sought out the people that you didn't want your children spending time with. Jesus sought out the people that required you to wash your hands after shaking their hands. Jesus sought out the people that would get you a bad reputation if the, the, the people that had the very buttoned up lifestyle saw you talking to. And why is that? It's because God has a totally different economy. God is doing something different. We read from Isaiah 55 this morning, later on in that text, Uh, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's in the business of doing things in a way that we don't anticipate. God's in the business of doing things in in, in a way that runs counter to our expectations. We sometimes, again, and I I, want to hammer on this point, we like to think, and I'm not necessarily being judgmental against this room, but it's certainly, it's a proclivity that we we can fall into about finding people who are, who are just very safe and very comfortable, and those are the ones that we pursue. But what is God in the business of doing? He's in the business of calling tax collectors. He's in the, in the business of calling antagonistic people like the Apostle Paul. He's in the, in, in, the, in the business of working with people like the patriarchs and all the problems that they, they had, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. These were not people who had it all together. They, they weren't neat and tidy. They were murderous and adulterous and thieves and liars. And God did a work and God pursued them, not because they were good, not because God gets more credit or more points by getting a certain amount of people, but because he has a plan that is designed and put together for his glory. Jesus has a mission to heal sinners. And thank God for that, because that's what you and I were, regardless of what our background looks like, regardless of what our life before Jesus looked like, but regardless of our socioeconomic class, regardless about where we fall in, in, in society and in culture, we were sinners, lost without hope, but for Christ. So church, there's a clear application here that we need to make sure that we're not in the business of taking people who are Christian-ish and making them Christians, and that's our only MO. When When that comes across our path, then we gladly engage in that. But we, we, we need to be in the business of, of being God's ambassadors for anyone who he could pull in front of our path. Now, of course, this is where the question comes in. You talked about peer pressure earlier. How do we make sure that we're not getting in trouble? How do we make sure that we're not putting ourselves in a dangerous situation or, more pertinently, we're not putting our children in a dangerous situation? First and foremost, we trust in God. This is not something we do with a cavalier attitude. We don't engage with people. We don't invite people in our home and just at a whim. We do this prayerfully. We do this considering exactly how we ought to do it. How do we address this situation or that situation or another one? Is there a time where it's wise for just the fathers to get together? Is there a time where it's wise for everyone to get together? Is there a time where it's wise to be in the home? Is there a time where it's wise to be in a public place? These are all things that are worth thinking about and worth considering. But we think about those things as opposed to building walls against people that we would say are not the kind of people that we should spend time with. Because once again, returning to the text, Jesus was spending time reclining at the table in his house with tax collectors and sinners, spending time with the people that got him, got labels placed on him, but also doing a kind of thing, eating and drinking. Elsewhere it says he is a drunkard and a glutton. So that means he was eating the kind of food that wasn't the bare minimum, and he was drinking the kind of drink that is not also the bare minimum. We don't compromise ourselves. We don't compromise love. And Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, 
Jesus, as he sends out his, his apostles, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So he's not mincing terms. He's not saying it's going to be easy. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There's your first critter analogy. And then he says, So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And this is the same call for us. We need to be, we need to be shrewd. We need to be crafty. We need to be, we need to be aware we need to be street smart. We need to be wise. We need to be able to pick up on subtle hints and say, you know what? I don't think this is a safe situation. I don't think this is a wise situation. This is, Jesus is not calling me to go into the most dangerous part of town just willy-nilly and just start handing out tracts. Maybe I need to bring someone with me. Maybe I need to call up the other guys at church. They'd be glad to accompany me. Pack some heat. That's neither here nor there. He says, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to be, have, have sometimes that, that, that mentality that, that people are critical of, of just being a, incredibly optimistic and just being very, very charitable and very, very open. There's a time for that. And we kind of see this in, in how Jesus is, is put as the prototypical image of what man ought to be in ministry, which is full of grace and full of truth. Some of us are more serpent-like. Some of us are more dovish. Some of us have more truth. Some of us have more grace. The call of us is to be, for us, is ought to be full of grace and full of truth, shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. Church, this is such an important thing to consider, because this is really ultimately what is going to determine the way that we as a church engage with our community and the surrounding culture. Do we go around the town of Chester and the surrounding environs trying to find people that look like us, act like us, talk like us, prioritize like us, vote like us, and that is our target? Or do we just wait for God to bring the people across our path that he wants us to address and engage? And when we see someone that kind of runs perpendicular to our lifestyle, our values, our morality, our worldview, does that make us say, God, you've given me this opportunity, or does that make us say, yuck? It's an important question to ask ourselves. Of course, it is always easier to engage with and interact with someone that we have a lot in common with. It's a lot easier and it's a lot more comfortable to just say, hey, yeah, go run off and play together when you meet a family that has kids that are the same age as your kids. But sometimes it requires the hard work of being as shrewd as a serpent while at the same time being as innocent as a dove. It requires the hard work of having those conversations with your children afterwards and say, yes, that family did this. Yes, that family said that. Yes, this, this is what we saw there. And this is what's going on. These are hard conversations. And they're ones where there has to be individual moments within families where a husband and wife need to have that conversation, where the family needs to have that conversation, where we need to rely on each other to give wisdom for how do we address these situations? How can we support each other when we're, we're experiencing things that are not nice, easy, white picket fence comfortable? We just return to the text. He was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And he was doing so such that other people saw 
and said, He is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Church, this is a burden, but it's also an opportunity and a wonderful responsibility that we have. It's a burden not in the sense that it's difficult, although it is difficult at times. But we need to be cognizant that this is our call. The, the, the phrase living or ministering missionally or missiologically it, it was overused in the last 20 years. But that's truly what our call is. It's not to be insular. It's not to have the, the walls of this, this wonderful building that we have in town. It's not for this to be where church is. And I know you know that. And I know that we, we do that. And we are living that out. But it is my encouragement to you that there is boldness and there is courage and that there's also accountability and there's also support as we go and do these things. And that we never see a situation and say, that spot doesn't belong to God. God can't redeem that conversation. God is unable to work in this situation just because it doesn't look very likely. We're called to go into those hard situations, those difficult situations. And what I've seen and what, is, what, bears, what the text bears witness to is that these are often the galvanizing moments that draw a church to a place where when we're having to do that hard work together or we are separately doing that hard work simultaneously but lifting up one another in prayer and bearing one another's burdens as we're doing that, these are the galvanizing moments where we see amazing things happen for the gospel in a church and in a community. We can't be afraid of tax collectors. We can't be afraid of sinners because Jesus wasn't afraid of us. No matter how rosy and, and leave it to beaver your life was before Jesus, we were still at odds with him. We were still enemies of him. But he, while we were still sinners, died for us. So that's the encouragement that we go out and do this, knowing that we are fulfilling the ministry that Jesus had himself, that he gave his apostles, that we've been engaged in for the last 2,000 years, to go to the sick because they need a physician. We have the medicine. There's something that we've, we've seen. People have no problem being incredibly outspoken about a perceived cure to an illness whether it be in social media, whether it be in town, whether it be in community, whether it be on TV, people have no problem saying, we have right here in this bottle the thing that's going to fix you. you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it, no matter what anybody says or thinks about them. So culturally, we get that. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the ultimate solution to the ills of the world and the ills of the heart is something we need to go out with with great enthusiasm. And, and not worrying about what people think. Not because we're, doing, we're, we're spreading the message in a profane manner, in a crass way, or in the wrong way, but with that shrewdness of a serpent and the innocence of doves, through his word, by the empowerment of his spirit, we are his ambassadors seeing him heal sinners. And when that happens, we're just so, we get it. We see it, and it's wonderful. All right, we could talk about this for a long time. Let's continue on in the passage. 
Verse 18, And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here we see something interesting. We see that Jesus has just spent time with tax collectors and sinners, kind of doing something counterculture. And now we see that Jesus is accused of not being religious enough. Like he's, go, he's extending himself too far by spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And now people are asking why he's not, why he's not fasting. Like, didn't you know that to be religious, you're supposed to fast? Like, that's, that's what we do, Jesus. And it's interesting that in the grand scheme of things, compared to John and what, what John the Baptist was doing, and compared to the Pharisees and what the Pharisees were doing, Jesus was actually, his ministry is very, very similar. Why is that? It's because they're using the same source material. They're using the same, the, the Old Testament. It's not like the Pharisees had a different Old Testament or John's disciples had a different Old Testament. They were all going off basically the same thing. But John and his disciples had this ascetic ministry. They had this, this, this kind of this monastic-like ministry where fasting was a significant part of it. The Pharisees had written into their additional uh, uh, teachings and their, their, in kind of their internal laws is that there was mandatory fasting built into their weekly calendar. So although Scripture in the Old Testament does have some fasts that are built into it for the Jews to recognize, John's disciples took it a step further, which isn't necessarily wrong. The Pharisees took it a step further, not necessarily wrong, until this was laid as an expectation for those around them who didn't, under, didn't believe in the same way they believed. So Jesus was very close to John and the Pharisees because they were having that same background uh, text that they were working off of the Old Testament, but they were still very different in application. And oftentimes, being similar but a little bit different breeds conflict. We see that with denominations. We see that with churches. Sometimes being very, very similar but differing on one point, that one point is not seen as one small difference, but it's seen as kind of a lightning rod for conflict and tension. And so you add all the antagonism that already exists between those who, who are not comfortable with Jesus and this one particular issue, and you have one more reason for them to say, why are you doing it so weird and so different, Jesus? And Jesus gives them an answer. He says that in, in verse 19, can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as the bride, have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. When you're at the wedding and the groom is there, no one is cleaning up. No one is taking time to re- figure out how much, you know, how much the cake cost and how much the caterer cost and making sure that all the linens are folded so that when the rental company comes, they can take them away and you don't get that surcharge. While the groom is there, it's a party still. While the groom is there, you're actually working and doing the business of enjoying the wedding. And so that's why the disciples aren't fasting. Jesus is not saddling them with extra responsibilities. Jesus is not giving them more things that they have to do. Because right now, they're in the business of eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So he's actually, and I think this bears witness to, in the text, 
They're not fasting, they're eating. That's what they need to be doing. They need to be spending time with people. They need to be in prayer, but they are doing it in a way to equip them and enable them to spend time with people and do what they need to do. But notice what he says in verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus' disciples differed from John's disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples because Jesus' disciples were in the business of doing the fulfillment of what John and the Pharisees were anticipating. Jesus' disciples were doing the work that John was pointing towards. Jesus' disciples were doing the work that the Pharisees, as they were attempting to interpret the Old Testament, were pointing towards. But one day, and this is actually one of the first times we see this in the Gospel of Mark, this, this expectation that Jesus is going to be gone. The expectation that Jesus is, is going to be leaving, and he's going to be leaving his, his apostles. He says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So today is a decent day to fast, not necessarily the 8th of October, but the days we live in are okay to fast in. Because although we're engaged in the work, we can fast looking back on Christ. We can fast for whatever purposes we need to fast for, whether it's for personal devotion, whether it's for, for, for corporate worship or corporate expectation. But we also still celebrate out of uh, remembrance and out of anticipation. But in that day, Jesus said, I'm not saddling my disciples with this extra requirement. It's not needed. They need their strength. They need to work right now. But on the heels of this interaction, Jesus adds this extra teaching. These parables, which sometimes can come off as a little obscure. So read them with me in verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, that patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So we have a little bit of an interpretive challenge for us. Now, if you have a study Bible, it might say, ah, this is exactly what it means. But the fact of the matter is, is that over the last 2,000 years, and certainly in the last few hundred years, there's been a number of interpretive explanations as to what the wineskin and what the cloth parable means. How do we interpret it? Do we interpret it as Jesus making a commentary on the disciples not fasting? Do we interpret it as to the nature of these interactions up to this point, the conflict between the religious establishment of the day and Jesus? Do we interpret it as some people do? This is Jesus talking in very broad strokes. I'm doing things one way, you were doing things another way. I think in general terms... That last interpretation is appropriate in general terms. Jesus is like what came before, but he's new and he's different. So a new wine is like old wine. It's just a little bit brighter and probably doesn't have some of the nuances that the old wine does. But it's also doing something that's very important for wine to be wine, and that's fermenting. And when wine ferments, there's little bugs in the, in the, in the grape juice, and they're doing the business of doing all the things little bugs do, and they create bubbles, and all of this, this is not a winemaking class, but you understand there's the fermentation is happening, and when that happens, there's an expansion. 
And that's why there's, uh, there's opportunities for expansion to happen whenever something is fermenting. Because if that doesn't happen, and if anyone's tried to make moonshine in their closet, if anyone's tried to make kombucha, if anyone's tried to, to, to brew beer and they didn't have everything opened up enough, you've probably had a large mess on your hands that you had to explain to your parents once they found it. But here's the thing. That new wine is not different from the old wine in that they're two different beverages. They're not two different drinks. They're not two different solutions. One has already fermented, and it's not going to expand anymore. You can screw the lid of the bottle on tight. You can hammer in the cork, and it's going to be okay. But the stuff that's on the front end, the fresh and bright stuff, it needs room to expand because it's still doing something new and different. It is growing. The same thing is true of the other parable, of the cloth. The, the old cloth has already shrunk. It's already gone through a few wash cycles. It's already been washed and tumble-dried on high, and it's already shrunk down to a nice, snug dimension. But that fresh piece of cloth that hasn't experienced that, if you were to put that patch on the sweater, and then you ran that through the dryer, the original cloth, the original sweater, has no room to grow, and so when that fresh piece of cloth shrinks down, the only thing you can do is either tear itself free from that old garment, or actually tear that old garment itself. And it's true to say that what Jesus is doing is not 100% dissimilar from the old. The new covenant is only, is, is, is only different in what Christ is bringing to bear, in a picture of Christ on the cross, in the picture of the, the Gentiles being grafted in, in so many other things. But it's built upon a foundation of continuity between the, of the Old Testament. Something that we already saw already in Mark's gospel was after Jesus healed the man, he said, go and present yourself as according to the laws of Moses. So Jesus is not in the business of getting rid of the Old Testament. And when Jesus is teaching and teaching the word, what is he using? He's using the Old Testament. So there is significant continuity, significant similarity between the old and the new. Jesus is now just bringing the new to bear in an amazing way a way for salvation for those who are found in Christ. So this is a good general way to interpret these parables, that what Jesus is doing, it can't be contained by the old. It needs to be seen as the, the new thing it as, the, as it is. It needs to be seen as the new covenant. It needs to be seen as a new teaching, not a, a discontinuous teaching that is replacing, but one that is fulfilling and building off of it. His expectations and his economy are different. And for those who are antagonistic, I think it's the, that's where you see this destruction imagery show up, where the new cloth will actually destroy the old, where the new wine would actually burst the wineskins. And we see that you can't mix the two. You can't put the new wine in the old wineskins, the new cloth on the old garment, because Jesus is not gentle to those who reject him. We often think of Jesus as being gentle, Jesus as being meek, Jesus as being lowly, and he is all of those things. However, for those who reject him, it's not going to be easy. There is going to be pain. There is going to be bursting and tearing. Isaiah chapter 8 says that he shall become a sanctuary. So we have this, he will do good. 
But then Isaiah, in talking about those who reject him, but both houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. This is a text that Jesus actually brings on himself and uses to illustrate what will happen to those, particularly those in Israel, who reject him that they will be crushed by him, that they will be broken on him. If his words and his message and his gospel are too much to bear, then they will fall and be struck by him. But I think that the most pertinent uh, application of this text, and we'll we'll draw this to a close, is for the the disciples. So I think in a a general perspective, it's true. Jesus is like what came before, but he's new and he's different, and it requires a rethinking and a reorganization and a reprioritizing, particularly in relation to the way that Pharisees saw it. But here we see it for his disciples. His disciples are being asked to do things in a new way. They're asking to do things in a way that breaks out of the mold of the Pharisees. They're, they're, they're being asked a way to do things in a way that cannot be contained by kind of the box that had been built for Israel, the nice and tidy set of civil and ceremonial laws. They're being asked to do things in a way that is going to transcend the bounds of those expectations and the borders of that country. And so in a simple thing like fasting, they can't be asked to do that. They can't be asked to live like the Pharisees wanted them to live because they have a greater calling and a bigger calling, and a calling that is actually going to bubble up and flow over the small box the Pharisees had built for themselves. So church, we have these two kind of pieces in this text. Jesus calling sinners, spending time with sinners, and healing sinners, and then that Jesus' expectations for those who follow him are different than our own expectations in the world. We have these two different pieces, and they Both are tied together by the call to follow him. They're both tied together with the call to discipleship. We see Jesus calling a sinner, Levi, Matthew, calling a sinner to follow him, and he did. We see Jesus calling people, his disciples, Matthew, this guy who's probably, I mean, if if we take the pace of Mark uh, and, and see it as anything accurately representing how quickly things are happening, this guy went from being a tax collector to being, to following Jesus and now hearing you don't have to fast, thinking, this isn't that bad. This isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But they're being called to live counter expectations. And they did. He calls sinners to follow him. He calls those who follow him to live counter their own expectations for what being religious or being godly or, 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 or doing whatever is, and what the world, certainly what the world's expectations of being religious and godly is. He calls people to live counter those expectations. And he called us, sinful people, to follow him counter to our own expectations to what that might be and what the world's might be as well. So how do we do that? Well, church, counter to our expectations, maybe even our our church background expectations were, we invite people in. We see the Spirit of Christ heal them. And we disciple them. We invite people in. We see the Spirit of Christ heal. And we disciple them. 
And if we are a church that does that kind of thing, contrary to maybe our desires from our flesh and more in line with the desires of God and his word, we will see amazing things happen. Things that no system can contain because they are only of God in an amazing, dramatic, and beautiful way. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. John's going to come up and lead us in a song. And we're going to take this moment to reflect on the cross, reflect on what Christ has done in our life, and anticipate Christ's return. What I think would be helpful, and certainly as the Lord leads you, do what you need to do in your mind and do what you need to do in your heart. Have a moment of repentance. Have a moment of, of, of reconciliation if you need to. But I think in, on, on the heels of what we just talked about this morning, there'd be wisdom in thinking of where we were. Of We might not have been at the tax collecting booth when Jesus called us, but we were somewhere where we were far from him. And the new blood of his covenant, a, a, a blood that was, was transcended the blood that was poured on the altar. Because although there was the old wineskins and there was the old garment of the blood and bulls and goats, the blood of Christ is, is so much more. However many quarts existed in his body and however many were spilled on the cross, that volume was an infinite number more than the countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of blood of bulls and goats that were poured out on the altar over all of those centuries in the temple. This blood, this new covenant poured out for you is a picture of his love and his devotion and his grace for sinners that he called to himself. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you be with us in these few moments as we come up and receive the elements. We ask that you will change our hearts towards how we think about our salvation if we are taking it for granted, and, we ch and that you change our hearts about those who you desire to save if we are using our expectations or the expectations of the world. Lord, we thank you that what you are doing is not some new and different thing, but it is the completion, and it is the dramatic breaking in of your kingdom that no system that no people group, that no nation can hold, but that you are in the business of putting all enemies under your feet and nothing can contain you, but all things are being brought into reconciliation for your benefit, for your good, for your glory. And it's in the name of your son we pray this. Amen.